0: My name's Carol. I'm calling from Oklahoma City.
1: Matt, and I live in Santa Cruz, California.
0: I ride my bike every
2: day possible. I think bicycles are the most incredible invention ever. One, it is good exercise. I collect them, I ride them, I buy them, I sell them, sometimes I race them. And two, it's the closest I can get to flying while still being on the ground. Nothing comes close to the joy, the feeling I have from getting exercise, transporting, flying on wheels. I love the freedom, I love the wind in my hair, and I love that feeling of forward movement
0: in my life.
1: Best invention ever
0: bicycles surged in popularity at the start of the pandemic when many people were looking to avoid public transportation and get outdoors but loving cycling isn't new it's one of the most popular forms of transportation worldwide after walking and we wanted to know what gets you on the saddle After the break, we'll dive into the history of bicycles and hear more from you. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To share your thoughts or have your questions answered on future shows, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com. Joining us from Brooklyn, New York, is Jody Rosen. He's the author of the new book, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. He's also a contributing writer for New York Times Magazine. Jody, welcome to 1A. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. Now, the bicycle dates back to 1817. Who invented it?
1: It was invented... the year before, kind of kind of i uh, guess eighteen seventeen was w- when the first bicycle was unveiled, but it was sort of around eighteen sixteen eighteen seventeen that a, a guy named Karl von Dreis, who was a minor german german nobleman in the, in the in the Duchy of Baden um, uh, in in what was then the German federation, um, came up with this idea to to design a vehicle which instead of putting you know your wheels along an axle on either side of the vehicle he he had this this really Eccentric insight at the time to line the two wheels up in a row, one in front of the other, and create a vehicle that you kind of straddle as you would a horse, balance your weight across, and you know move move across, move down the road. Um, that first bicycle, the one that um, that Karl von Drais invented in 1817, he called it the, the, the Laufmaschine, which means the running machine. Uh, the reason he called it that is you literally kind of like straddled your, your put your body weight across it and ran. It didn't have pedals, so it was, a, it was a push bike. It was a bike that you scooted down the road with a kind of ice skating motion. You, you know, you kind, of, you kind of scooted your feet. Uh, against the pavement to propel it forward mm-hmm. a little bit like those in fact a lot like those balance bicycles that you see children using to learn to learn to ride as a sort of starter bike these days those little wooden machines that that also lack pedals yeah. so so it was it was it was a kind of you know, it wasn't exactly a bicycle in the sense that we have a bicycle to, that we have a bicycle today, because it, it crucially lacked these pedals. But it was definitely the the very first bicycle like device that was ever invented, and it it launched the the age of the bicycle.
0: Here's Mark in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: I
3: have a most unusual bicycle. that carries a real piano on it. It weighs six hundred and twenty five pounds with the piano on it, and we've ridden the bicycle uh, thirty four hundred miles in different uh, regions of the US in order to promote uh, kids access to arts and athletic. And I just wanna say that it's been a thrill of a lifetime for myself to be able to ride this unique contraption uh, and surprise people with gifts of joy.
0: Mark calls his bike Mr. B's Joybox Express, and he told us he likes to ride around Ann Arbor and Detroit and joy bomb people on the streets. Jody, so many people associate bicycles with joy and freedom, but you call your book a tough love history of the bicycle. What are some of the complexities in the history of how bicycles have been used?
1: The thing about bicycles is a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds them, particularly among bicycle enthusiasts, bicycle advocates and activists, um, kind of picture the bike as this this noble and ennobling device, has this wonderful kind of green machine um, that has a lower, you know, next to zero carbon footprint that is good for the planet, good for cities, good for your health. And possibly even a redemptive or messianic device, something that can save the world. There's a lot of rhetoric around the bicycle that, that makes that case. And I don't want to poo-poo any of that. I love bikes too, and they are wonderful machines that can do a lot of good for this world and especially for, for the cities we live in. But, um, but that, that sort of rhetoric is complicated by the actual history. When you look at the history, some of the pieties around the bicycle is this, this, good, this good thing over against the bad car um, are, are, are challenged. So, so if you look at the way that the bicycle arrived in many places in the world, it first arrived um, ridden by soldiers and by missionaries or prospectors or other people who were kind of um, impinging on indigenous lands in the age of empire. This is true in Africa, lots of colonial agents in in you know European colonies, use the bicycle um, both to get around, but also to wage wars of conquest. So, so we have to kind of look at that picture. Also, um, there's a there's an extremely dark chapter in the bicycle's history. If you look specifically at at, at Congo, at the Congo Free State, that is the um, the colony that 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 King Leopold II of Belgium established in 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 the Congo, uh, in the Latter part of the nineteenth century, and and King Leopold II um, instituted a a regime of forced labor, really slave labor, in his colony in Belgian Congo. Um, Historians estimate that somewhere between ten to twenty million Congolese Africans died in that um, in that brutal regime. So we have the bicycle, uh, you know, implicated in this horrific humanitarian and ecological catastrophe. So my my, point, my larger point was simply that if you look at the, the history of the bicycle, just like if you look at the history of any machine in this world, it's not only a noble and ennobling tale. There, there are these complexities. We see these continuing today because um, on the one hand, you know, bicycles, as I say, are very good for cities and are great for public health and for the environment. On the other hand, um, scholars have shown academics, uh, policymakers, people who study these things have shown that, for instance, bicycle paths are often correlated with gentrification and the predations of real estate developers. So there are there are complications along the lines of class and race in our cities today in which the bicycle is is likewise implicated. So it's 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 a, a muddy picture as it is with any real thing in the real world. And and that, I tried to bring some of that perspective in, in my book on the bike.
0: Well, I, I want to stay with this surge in popularity in the 1890s around bicycles, because while they were popular, many of the time also questioned their value for society. Here's a newspaper excerpt from 1897. This is from the Montana newspaper, the Anaconda to standard.
2: The bicycle is a menace to the mind. It annihilates the reading habit. The reading rooms and libraries as compared to what they used to be are deserted. It is a menace to the health. It provokes heart disease, kidney affections, consumption, and all sorts of nervous disorders. It is a menace to the domestic virtues. It breaks up and destroys the home. The children are turned into the street or left at home to look out for themselves while father and mother go spinning. It is a menace to morality. It makes women immodest. And when a woman throws off the beautiful reserve which the Almighty has placed around her, she stands on dangerous ground. There is no telling what a woman will do after she has lost her womanliness. The bicycle opens the way for everlasting ruin to a multitude of young men and women who might otherwise escape.
0: And again, that's an excerpt from a newspaper uh, written in 1897. And thanks to one A producer, Chris Remington, for his voice acting work there. Jody, how widespread was the bicycle moral panic at the turn
1: of the century? Oh, extremely widespread. I mean, the the, the context here is simply that the bicycle itself was so popular in this period, and kind of hit hit the 1890s like a like a lightning strike. Um, you know the the its it, its effect is comparable. Well, if you to something like the transformative power of the internet, or you know the way rock and roll or jazz, um, the the sort of the sort of social transformations that were engendered by the arrival of the bicycle. So, um, if you 1885, that was the year we sort of we've got this this finally a beautifully engineered modern bike, what was called the safety bicycle at the time because it was it was safer than earlier models, um, and suddenly it was not not only um, easy to ride one of these things, but affordable and available to the masses where earlier bikes were, kind of, were more expensive and were kind of like a, a status symbol for wealthier people. Um, and so what you had was suddenly millions of people were on bicycles, especially in the United States and, and Western Europe, and crucially, many people who previously hadn't had access to that kind of personal mobility, who, who had to walk on foot, foot or take public transportation, suddenly could zip around on bikes. Um, you know, now uh, the, the most importantly, we heard a bit in that in that excerpt. Women took to the bicycle by the millions, and this was viewed um, as as a real threat to the social order because these women were not only riding these bicycles just to to get around town, but it was sort of viewed as a, as, a, as a symbol of personal and collective emancipation for women and was embraced as a tool of protest by suffragists, by feminists who were, who were protesting, uh, advocating greater women's rights, the right to vote. So predictably, as you say, there was this tremendous backlash to this great bicycle mania, a, a moral panic that, that we typically see greeting um, you know he, big, big new inventions that transform society. So the, that excerpt is very much <laughs> not... An anomaly. There's lots of stuff like that from the period.
0: Susan B. Anthony once said the bicycle, quote, has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world, end quote. Jody, how did bicycles help pave the way for women's rights?
1: Well, I, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's uh, women, uh, particularly middle class, white women, if we want to get specific, mm-hmm. uh, in the, the period of the 1880s, 1890s. But prior to that, there, there, there were they didn't have the same kind of personal ability, their mobility. There wasn't the same sort of autonomy. Women often had to go places chaperoned. Um, and suddenly the bicycle uh, afforded them this new means of getting around, not only quickly under their own power, but alone. <laughs> they could go where they wanted, unchaperoned. Um Uh, There was also, um, you know, reforms to what was called Uh, The rational dress movement arose arose as a result of the bicycle. So prior to this period, middle class women were, you know, in this Victorian, late Victorian period were wearing these, you know, huge skirts and, uh, you know, constricting corsets and whalebones dresses, which made it very difficult to even move around on foot, let alone do something like mount a bike. So women who wanted to ride bikes suddenly decided to start wearing other kinds of clothing, most famously so-called bloomers, these kind of pantaloons, these big, almost like MC Hammer style mm-hmm. pants, right, that they used because they could, they could wear them when they were riding the bike, which again was viewed by, by kind of guardians of public morality as this grave threat to the way things should be, because you had the new woman, uh, a feminist woman, a liberated woman, moving around on a bike in, in this crazy modern clothing. So they're really, they really were crucial to the women's movement at this period, as, as that Susan B. Anthony quote illustrates.
0: When else have bikes symbolized or maybe even facilitated independence through history?
1: I mean, they have often—bicycles have often been used in protest movements um, around the globe and— so we see, for instance, just to choose a, you know, a relatively historically recent example, um, the, the, the huge uprising in the Tiananmen Square protest in 1989 in China. That was really a bicycle protest. Hundreds of thousands of people rode to, on bicycles to Tiananmen Square every day to engage in those protests. Eventually there were a million people in that in. That, uh, in Tiananmen Square, making that protest, and in fact, in the, um, the the horror of the Tiananmen Square crackdown, whose anniversary we just recently celebrated on June fourth, nineteen eighty nine, um, you saw bicycles not only crushed by the tanks of the of the of the Chinese army during that protest but people using their kind of using their bicycles to fight off the tanks and to whisk people the injured out of Tiananmen Square so they really played a crucial role in that movement but it's 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 been the case you know throughout history most recently even in the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprising you know, thousands and thousands of Americans took to the streets on bicycles. Um, so it's, uh, it, the bicycle has long been, uh, there was a Chilean politician um, in the late 1970s who said socialism can only arise, arrive by bicycle. There's this sense that the bicycle is especially a kind of device of the, the left and of, and of personal and collective liberation. Um, and and, and that's, that, as I say, has been a recurring theme in history.
0: Well, we asked for your favorite bike memories, and many of you are taking us back to your childhood.
2: So one day I took my bicycle and I put my stomach on the seat, and I put my feet stretched out behind me, my hands on the handlebar, and I was a wizard flying through. I just was in another world. I went down the little hill in front of
0: my house to make a wide turn to go into the school ground, and there was a chain across the entrance of the parking lot. And I just blew across it. My bicycle went from my back over my head. Me and my friend Colby, he always had his hair combed like James Dean, and he went out and got his uh, father's 46 uh, Cadillac in order to tie it to my wizard bicycle, which had a motor on it, and uh, we're trying to get it primed up because it was so cold to get it running, you know,
2: and I, I just about slid into the Tennessee River on that ice. When we were growing up, we would take a grocery cart and put it at the bottom of a hill in our neighborhood
1: and jump over the grocery uh, cart, use it for a ramp. If you landed successfully, we would cheer for you. And if you didn't land successfully and crashed and got busted up, we would laugh at you.
0: Okay, I just feel like we need a little disclaimer here that we do not encourage nor condone any of those antics, but we do appreciate the messages. That was Patricia, Daniel, and Barry. Jody, so many of the stories we're hearing are from childhood, but cycling wasn't always an activity for kids. When did that start?
1: Yeah, no, originally it was thought that bicycles were, weren't were for kids at all. They were adult, you know, they were personal transport machines, utilitarian uh, t- machines that you used to get around town, Run errands, do your business. Um, It really only caught on as a as a as a um, as a sort of children's plaything in the United States after the arrival of the automotive era. You know, so in uh, when when Ford's Model T came along. uh, at the end of the first decade of the, of the 20th century, suddenly you had car culture and bar, bikes were marginalized in American cities and on American roads. And bicycle manufacturers needed to find a new way to, to market these, <laughs> these machines. So they thought, okay, let's aim for the children's market. And then the bicycle was really, was really recast as a, as a toy. And that has been you know, a kind of an idea that's really stuck with us in American culture through the decades. Um, for for better and often for worse. I will say that these stories we're hearing are, are wonderful. And it is true that like that, you know, that moment of when you learn to ride a bike, when the adult who's kind of behind you steadying the bike lets go and you're suddenly moving forward on your own is really an archetypal, like almost unequaled moment of, uh, you know, in your, in your childhood where you suddenly feel this sense of your, your, own, your own power and freedom. And I think what's wonderful about the bike is you can kind of have that feeling of like, wee, I'm riding the bike, even as an adult. It's, there's, 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 no, there's no machine which more instantly teleports you back to your childhood than when you're, you know, whizzing down the road on your bike.
0: Jody, you're a dad, so you've had the experience of teaching your your son to ride a bike. We're hearing so many personal stories from listeners about what bikes mean to them, but what do they mean to you?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I the bicycle has been my primary means of transport my entire adult life, and you obviously, it was my primary means of transport when I was a kid too, other than walking around. Um, and I really share the feelings that were expressed there, in that in the, some of those, in some of these messages, that is, it's just there, for me riding a bike. What what I noticed about bike riding is that I feel better on a bike than I do off it. On those days when I can't ride around for any reason if maybe it's raining it's just not the best way to commute on that day maybe i've got too long a trip to make and i can't show up you know dripping with sweat <laughs> i i feel almost like an amputee so part of the reason i wrote this book you know it's, which is called two wheels good the history and mystery of the bicycle is to probe that mystery that kind of my, make my own personal investigation about why it is that it feels so good to ride this ride this machine and why is it that i I feel better when I'm kind of merged with the bicycle and I, i'm like I'm like the engine of the engine of a bike than I do when i'm you're walking down the street on two legs uh, but uh in terms of in terms of you know being the the father of a child who rides bikes i i have my older son is now almost eighteen, and he like me, zips around New York. On a bicycle. It's a little it's a little nerve wracking because he's kind of a daredevil, takes after his dad in that way. But I really don't have the um, you know any moral ground ground to stand on in in kind of tisking him about riding around in New York City <laughs> because it's my favorite way to get around town too.
0: We're discussing all things bicycle. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our one-a-vox pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from one of you.
2: Hi, my name's Larry. I live in Florida. I'm a 76-year-old man in a living in a gated community, and I find it really comforting to get out early in the morning, just get out, relax, do a little bit of exercise, enjoy myself in the quiet surroundings, and know that I'm trying to do something healthy to keep myself strong. That's pretty much what it takes to get on a bike, just wanting to do it. Thanks for that message,
0: Larry. And another guest joins us now to explain the issues bike riders face on roads today. Danny Harris is the Executive Director of Transportation Alternatives. That's a biking, walking and public transit advocacy organization in New York City. Danny, welcome.
3: Hi, Jen. Great to be here.
0: So COVID ushered in a cycling boom. One in 10 American adults who hadn't been on a bike in more than a year reported getting back on the saddle. I include myself in that number. Trail ridership tripled in, in March 2020 over the previous year, and the surge in demand triggered a bike shortage. What did that boom look like in New York City, Danny?
3: Well, in New York City, it really was transformational. It, it was building on you know decades of advancement in both bike infrastructure and, and working to break car culture that created an invitation for New Yorkers to move around by bike. You know, the challenge with these things is that, you know, Mayor de Blasio once told New Yorkers, bike or walk if you can, the if you can is the incredibly important piece of this bike boom because the two biggest reasons that people don't bike, one is because of bike safety, and the second is because of the absence of bike parking. So you had more people accepting the invitation and you had the city failing to meet the needs of new yorkers who were accepting the invitation to move around by bike
0: so what has that meant for the work you do
3: well for bike advocates around the country what we're seeing is really these two trends one is a, a tremendous bike boom and as you would mentioned uh, both in terms of walking into any bike shop or just looking around and seeing more people biking and on the other hand you have rising traffic deaths and especially more people are dying biking and and part of the reason for that is because vehicles are getting so much larger. You know, you look at something like the GMC Hummer EV, and while it may be good for the environment, it's it's almost 10,000 pounds, and it's actually too heavy to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. So you have this arms race, especially among auto manufacturers of building larger, more powerful vehicles, and also more people, especially like my children, accepting the invitation to ride around by bike and the absence of protected bike infrastructure to protect our most vulnerable road users.
0: We heard from many of you who were also a part of the recent
2: bike boom.
3: I learned during the pandemic that an hour a day on my bike completely
2: changed my state of mind. Now I try to bike 60, 70 miles a week. I am my wife. Uh, biked a little bit before the pandemic, but we really started getting into it. And we found it to be an activity that is wonderful for emotional, physical health, but also something that's uh, really been great at bringing us together, having an activity. One of my concerns about cycling as a family activity, though, is it, it is kind of cost prohibitive uh, to get a really good bike and cost several hundred dollars. And then attaching the hitch and uh, rack to my wife's car actually cost us around $500. So it something that we probably couldn't have done until this point in our life when I had a full-time job.
0: Thanks for those messages. I'd love to hear both of you respond to what the caller just described. Jody, I'll come to you first. Just how accessible is biking?
2: Uh, well,
1: you know, again, it really depends on on uh, the, the environment you live in, the kind of infrastructure that's there. So Danny was talking about here in New York City, you know, it's, you know, you can get a bike cheap, right? Bikes are, are low-cost machines. You can you can get one for a used bike for twenty bucks. The issue is, do you have a safe place to ride the bike? Uh, where are you going to park the park the bike when you get where you're going? Um, and uh, and and these concerns are are. As Danny mentioned, becoming you know greater concerns in this in this moment where we have a surge a surge in cycling, but we also have uh, you know increased increased car you know here in New York for instance there was there was also a car boom. Uh, in the wake of the pandemic, so we've got more and more people on different kinds of vehicles trying to move through uh, dense spaces in our in our cities, and and you know something's got to give here. Here in New York, there's um, currently a big controversy over whether we're going to be able to implement congestion pricing, which was passed, but there's there's holdups. Danny can speak to the <laughs> the bureaucratic issues there. Um, we've got more people now. T- embracing the e-bike which is really a big uh, a, a revolutionary new device these are these these motorized bikes with electric motors so it's it, it, there 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 are more ways for people to seek trans, transportation alternatives these days on two wheels and and otherwise but it really is an issue of infrastructure and safety and that's something that we have to look to our our lawmakers our elected officials to um to help us rectify or else we're going to have we're going to have increased problems and increased deaths and injuries.
0: Now, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, nine hundred thirty-two bicyclists were killed in traffic ca- crashes in twenty twenty. That was a nine percent increase over the year prior. Jody, how has the safety of bicycle riding evolved over its history?
1: Um, well, here in the United States, it's been a, it's been a story of I would say. The decline and fall to the extent that I mean, Danny may want to correct me here, but if you look at the the peak, the the 1890s bike boom. This is before we had the automobile. There was excellent bi- bicycle infrastructure that was uh, built very quickly in many American cities. Notably, here in New York, in New York, we had we had something called the Coney Island Bicycle Path, which was like a a, a grand cycling boulevard, the likes of which is hardly which has hardly been replicated anywhere in the century pl- plus since. Um, but what we really the, the, what the story is is a story of car culture. Um, taking over and that and that let's be clear about what that is it's really it's really been the marginalization of the bicycle not just as kind of an idea as a you know not just not just something that has been you know construed as more of a toy or a children 's thing they they've been literally pushed off the roads because there's simply no room for bicycles in cities, which are environments which are especially you know uh, that's where you should be re- doing something like riding a bike to get around is is in a city so parking spaces are taking up the 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 room that could be used for bicycles and this is this is written into our statutes the the, the laws privilege car culture too so it's been a it's been a it's been a, a long story of uh, difficult time increasingly difficult times for bike riders even as we've seen millions and millions of cyclists embracing the bicycle and wanting to ride through a number of different bicycle booms that have arisen through the decades well,
0: beyond the question of of car culture i'm curious to hear danny what debates arise in communities that are looking to put bike lanes in place
3: well look i you know part of the challenge of the debate is that it becomes do you want safety or not as opposed to your neighborhood needs to be safer and here are two or three options about how it could be so you can take a place like atlantic uh, atlantic avenue in brooklyn Atlantic Avenue had 10 fatalities just in the last year. The last year was the deadliest year in New York City in almost a decade. So the the point is that when that happens in any city, where you already have the data and the tools about how to make conditions safer, the conversation with the community should not be, do you want your neighborhood to be safe or not safe? And then let them vote on that, especially when more people are dying. It should be, we want to make your neighborhood safe. And let's consider the various ways that we can do that. So it might be that this is a neighborhood that also needs additional street trees because it's too hot or it's a a naturally occurring retirement community and you want more places to sit or, you know, some of these other type of amenities that can be built in addition to these safety improvements. And, you know, right now we live in a situation where, you know, bike advocates, safe streets advocates are still having to fight trench warfare block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, even when we have... The proven tools, and unfortunately, because of the lack of political will at the top, and also, you know, understandable pushback at a community, that you know we still are not at a place where, where we think of our bike or public transit network like our roads. It, it would be un- unfathomable in any in any community not to have a road that would take you there. Why don't we think the same way about a sidewalk, a protected bike lane, a bus? I mean, we should be thinking of all these things in tandem.
0: Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg spoke to the League of American Bicyclists in April. He said money from the infrastructure package would help America more bike-friendly.
2: Uh, a big part of expanding the use of, uh, of bicycling as, as a means of commuting, as well as just a moral imperative for commuting and, and recreational bicycling alike, is to, to make sure that it's safe. And uh, there, there are proven ways to do it. Uh, often those don't get deployed as much as they could be for lack of funding. We are now in a position to bring that to so many more communities.
0: Danny, how will this infrastructure package make America more bike-friendly?
3: Well, to Secretary Buttigieg and and to Deputy uh, Commissioner Trottenberg, who also came from New York, you know, a huge thank you for that. And, you know, as you know, this is about political will. You could drop millions or billions of dollars in, in each of our cities, and if you, one, don't have the political leadership that understands this vision of safe systems, of building streets for people, of giving people more options, and is willing to to build this in every community. I mean, you look at at, uh, having lived in DC for so many years, you know, remember Georgetown opted out of the Metro, you know, and they had incredible resources. Now imagine all the neighborhoods that don't have the resources and were left out. We cannot have a transportation system that works for some and not others, that doesn't connect everybody. So the money is important. We need the political will. We need it to come from the top, not just in the government, but from every single one of our cities to be focused on building streets for people and prioritizing our most vulnerable. Otherwise, it's, it's money that will not get spent or will not get spent well.
0: You know jody for for this hour we've really been focused on on the bicycles role in in the u s but you you look at it really in more of a global context, and what do you think we need to understand about the bicycle within that larger context?
1: Well, actually, I think this bears a little bit on that on the conversation we were just having you know uh, the the question of safe streets is' really i, I it's, it's important to frame that as an issue of est- equity justice um it even, it even connects to the Black Lives Matter movement. You know These transit issues hit, say, uh, there, there are more, more um, there, the roads are worse in communities of color. Um, it's dan- more dangerous to be on a bike uh, in a black and Latino neighborhood in the United States. And the police, incidentally, uh, ticket cyclists of color um, at a far greater rate than they do white cyclists. So the reason I bring that up when we're talking about the, the global question is often the, the issue of biking is framed uh, as, a, as a kind of a lifestyle choice, as something to do with you know, good quality of life, as, all, as, as, as you know, maybe a, a kind of a yuppie pursuit or a bourgeois bohemian <laughs> choice. Uh, but if you look around the world, um, bicycle is labor, it's livelihood. And in the global south, which is where most of the cyclists and bicyclists are in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, you have um, uh, millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people making their living riding bikes. And that leads us right back here to the United States because we have our own underclass of working cyclists. So... It's all one big bicycling planet, as I say in the book, and that if we start looking in those terms, maybe some of these policy questions will come into sharper focus.
0: That's Jody Rosen, author of the new book, Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. He's also a contributing writer for The New York Times Magazine. And Danny Harris, the Executive Director of Transportation Alternatives. Jody, Danny, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from... WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.